0: and welcome to the ONTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the US State Department, and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. I'm here today with Gary Nesner, who retired from the FBI in 2003, following a 30-year career as an investigator, instructor, and negotiator. A significant focus of his career was directed towards investigating Middle East hijackings in which American citizens were victimized. In addition, Gary was an FBI hostage negotiator for 23 years of his career, retiring as the chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit Critical Incident Response Group, the first person to hold that position. In that capacity, he was heavily involved in numerous crisis incidents and covering prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, religious zealot sieges, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping cases involving American citizens. For additional information about Gary, please visit his website at www.garynesner.com. Gary, welcome to the Ontick Protective Intelligence Podcast.
1: Thanks, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here with you, my, my old friend with whom we have a lot of interesting experiences in years gone by.
0: We sure do. Gary, you have worked on some of the biggest criminal cases and terrorism cases in modern history. What are some of the lessons that you have learned about teamwork and leadership?
1: Well, to, to properly investigate uh, any crime or, or major event that occurs, you clearly have to have the team working together with everybody with their oars in the water and rowing in the same direction. Uh, a lot of times I've found that because the complexity of these cases and the multitude of agencies and individuals involved, some of the most challenging issues relate to uh, what we call the crisis within the crisis. And that's the differing opinions and sometimes counterproductive activities of people within the larger group. And that becomes um, a real drain on time and resources. Um, it's good to have different opinions and different perspectives, and there needs to be an environment for that to take place. But once a decision is made, there needs to be you know, an efficient model uh, moving forward so that the team can, can function at its, its best capacity to try to achieve the goal, whether that's you know conducting investigation, dealing with witnesses, dealing with, with the terrorists themselves, whatever it might be. So. Um, Again, the crisis within the crisis, I've always found to be the biggest strain of my time and energy.
0: From a nuts and bolts perspective, what kind of person becomes a hostage negotiator, Gary? What are some of the skills that are needed to be good at it?
1: Yeah, the, the, uh, I think the best negotiators we have in the FBI and, and by extension, law enforcement generally are really mature, um, confident individuals who have good interpersonal communication skills. Um, perhaps the greatest uh, asset that they they possess is self control. So when you're dealing with someone that's agitated or angry or whatever, rather than rising to the occasion and arguing back when they attack you or say something inappropriate, you you kind of let that be water off a duck's back. And so you know the premise being that how can you uh, hope to influence the behavior of another if you can't keep your own emotions in check? So I think that calm individual in law enforcement you know, we would look for somebody in terms of recruiting that, you know, is a really good interviewer, uh, a good interrogator, gets a lot of confessions, um, has a lot of informants, um, you know, a very mature individual, and, you know, regardless of of gender, and um, they tend to make the best negotiators. And, and there's this kind of unknown commodity, Fred, that, that I think you'll agree with. And it's just being plain old likable, uh, the kind of people that people want to work with, people want to engage with people they like and, and feel are respectful and genuine. So a negotiator has to create a positive rel- relationship in a, in a relatively short period of time in a very tense situation.
0: And of course, you're dealing in very stressful environments, uh, such as hijackings or, you know, for example, in your case, uh, Waco.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're dealing with, with folks that are different from yourself and your team. They have uh, different ideas, strongly held beliefs, some quite non-traditional and sometimes very troublesome. Their behavior may have been something that you you know find very uh, terrible to deal with, but you have to put again your personal feelings aside and say, what's the goal here? The goal is you know bringing about uh, cooperation and, and getting a peaceful surrender. And even if there's already been loss of life, to do those things that will minimize the chances that there'll be any additional loss of life. And negotiations like almost any other thing in life, it's all about relationships. So if the skill sets that we teach, the listening skills, the communication skills, if they work in these extremely tense situations with life and death on the line, well, then certainly they have broader applicability in, in less life and death situations that we all encounter in life, whether it's at work or with family and friends.
0: And the Bureau has a specific school for this, don't they?
1: Yeah, the FBI... Um, runs the, uh, the National Crisis Negotiation course, which is a two-week course that we train our FBI negotiators in, but also selected police officers from the United States and around the world are able to attend that course. It's, it's a big plum for most uh, police officers who get to attend that course. It, it's quite a credential. Um, and the course contains, you know, obviously a, a lot of the do's and don'ts and nuts and bolts, but it's a lot of role playing, abnormal psychology, um, you know, case studies. It's, it's a really good program. And, you know, I was involved in helping develop that curriculum uh, to where it is today. And it's really fun to see the evolution of when someone starts the course and two weeks later, the skill sets that they've acquired um, that make them very effective in these crisis events.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Antec Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Gary, I read a recent interview that you did for Newsweek, which was just simply fascinating discussing some of the domestic threat landscape that uh, we're witnessing today, obviously, in the aftermath of the horrific events on January 6th at the Capitol and so forth, and how you kind of look at this in the same kind of perspective of the events leading up, for example, uh, to Oklahoma City and Timothy McVeigh. Hopefully, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I'd love to understand what you see just predicated upon your experience in this space with the domestic threat landscape.
1: I think a lot of the activity that we see that has caused so much problem, um, currently that, that focuses on, on the right-wing extremists, is based on misinformation and a, a, a skewed look at, at what's happening. And, and there's a lot of people that seem particularly susceptible today to uh, being vulnerable to misinformation. So, you know, you can't snap your finger and make somebody think more broadly and, uh, you know, take in a a wider source, uh, wider collection of information. But but it is problematic. And my experience has been if you sit down and and engage with folks, um, you you stand a decent chance of if not changing their outlook, certainly moderating their behavior. I'll give you an example. In 1996, we dealt with the 85 day siege in Montana with the Freeman, an anti-government group. And early in that event, uh, representatives of the Montana militia came out very angrily and demanded a meeting with the FBI. And uh, I was the one chosen to meet with them along with another agent. And they had a a ton of accusations about us using the military and being underhanded and doing all these illegal things. And in response to that, I said, what do you want to know? Do you want to you think we're using military tanks? We're not. Would you like me to drive you up? You can look for yourself. Where would you like to go? What would you like to see? And you know, after fielding a number of inquiries and questions from them along those that vein, it, you could just see the wind come out of the sails, <laughs> and and they just they realized that they weren't dealing with a bunch of booted thugs. That we also articulated here is why we're investigating Freeman. Here's the specific crimes that they've been charged with. You know, and none of these have to do with their their rights as sovereign citizens. These are theft and you know, financial instrument manipulation, all sorts of things, kidnapping. And, you know, that's why we're here. We're not here because we don't agree with their philosophy. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here is, you know, identifying these groups and and trying to open up a dialogue can go a long way in altering their often skewed perspective about what we're doing and why.
0: So it's really about communication and trust, or at least trying to build that trust.
1: I think so. Uh, you know, you need to listen. Uh, we always say the cheapest concession you can make is, is to listen. It costs you nothing. So what I've always tried to do, and in fact, going back to the Freeman again, as an example, it, it took quite a while before the Freeman themselves would, would meet with us. It was over halfway through the 85-day ordeal. And I remember when our negotiators went forward, the on-scene commander said, well, what are we going to tell them? And my answer was, we're not going to tell them anything. We're just going to listen to them and acknowledge their point of view, and tell them to understand how they feel about it. We're not going to dictate anything to them. And that's exactly what we did. And I think it not only surprised the freemen, but it also uh, it displayed us as being thoughtful, and respectful, and genuine. And you know, these kinds of skill sets, and you know from your diplomatic work, are, are worth their weight in gold.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Gary, I know that uh, in 2018, Paramount Network uh, did a TV event uh, entitled Waco, which is based in part on your book. What lessons can you share with us that you came away from based on your work at Waco? Uh,
1: Waco was probably the most challenging event any any law enforcement agency's ever had to face. I, I, I say that with a, f- a fair sense of knowledge about what's happened historically in law enforcement crisis situations. We dealt with a situation where there had already been loss of life when the FBI got there. Um, we had a uh, a person in David Koresh who um, had some very unusual ideas. was a very narcissistic, uh, self serving leader, a manipulator of his people. And then on top of that, we had our own internal struggles within the FBI as to the best way to deal with this. And we had a, a, a very uh, aggressive tactical leader uh, who had a great influence over the on- overall commander. And that really subverted, unintentionally, but it subverted a lot of my negotiation efforts. You know, after all, are you going to listen to the nice man on the phone uh, you know, saying he wants to hear what you have to say, or are you going to look out the window and see the man in the tank that just crushed your car? So we had those kinds of conflicts. Uh, despite that, you know, in the first half of the event when I was there, we got 35 people out, including 21 children. And I'm, I'm quite proud of that. It took a lot of hard work to do that. Um, after that point, I was rotated out and they brought in uh, a they thought would be more sympathetic f- towards stronger tactical pressure. And as we know, no one else came out at that point, moving till the end of the situation. You know, it's, it's the paradox of power. The harder you push, uh, often the more likely it is that you'll meet resistance. And it goes back to a point we earlier discussed, uh, Fred, and that is, that was a clear case of a crisis within a crisis. Now, for me, the blame squarely rests on the shoulders of David Koresh. However, that does not mean that the FBI uh, performed at its most efficient level. Um, we actually departed from longstanding FBI practice at Waco. That's the base, basic lesson learned. Three years later in Montana, we, we did it the right way and no one was hurt. So these are complex situations. There are people who think the big old bad government just wanted to come in and kill everybody. And there's others that feel that these people were all kooks and nuts and got what they deserved. And as we know, life is far more nuanced and far more complex than that. And uh, somehow it seems in public discourse, we always look for easy solutions and quickly want to try to identify somebody to blame.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Gary, you've written a great book, Stalling for Time. Please tell our audience about it.
1: Well, um, when I got out of the FBI, I, I mean, I reflecting back, I, I went to work for a consultancy for five years full time, but I kept having associates, former negotiators throughout the law enforcement community kept saying, you, you've just been involved in things that no one else has, and you need to write a book. And after a while, that I guess that got to me. And I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. So I was fortunate enough that uh, Random House uh, contracted me to write the book, Stalling for Time. And it, it's a book that talks about the evolution of negotiation in law enforcement. And of course, it talks about my personal journey and the cases that I profile within the book, I I try to extract important communication lessons so that the reader learns while also hopefully being interested in this uh, uh, historic event that they're reading about. Most of them are historic. Some of them are are, are not so well known. Um, And uh, I called it stalling for time because I I look back at my original note-taking guide when I was first trained as a negotiator, kind of early in the business. And the first three words I wrote down in the margin were stall for time, being that if, you know, in, in the medical profession, the, the Hippocratic oath, you know, first do no harm with negotiations, it's if you do nothing else, stall for time. And the intent being that we slow the process down, we lower the emotional content, we deconflict, we lower the emotional level of the confrontation. And it's at that point where we tend to see people make better decisions, and for the most part. Uh, peacefully comply and surrender. We have an extraordinary successful success rate in in, in negotiations. is in the ninety percentile, and there's very few things in life in general, certainly not in law enforcement, that have that kind of success. Yet when it happens, there's a lot of people who say, "Well, I, I guess the guy didn't mean it, and he wasn't so tough after all. That must have been easy." I always kind of laugh at that. You know, I said, "You try it." You know.
0: <laughs> yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Gary, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say?
1: Well, I think for your listeners, Fred, the the key thing I've learned about negotiations that I think applies broadly in life and work is think about building a relationship. And you do that by being respectful and genuine. Even if you know at the get-go that you maybe have very divergent points of view and you disagree vehemently with, or the position that the other person's going to take, be respectful enough to listen to what they have to say. Acknowledge it. Um, you know, there's two key components it's, it's a restatement of content. So when I'm feeding back, and we call it active listening because you just don't sit there quietly. When you're telling me about an experience, I repeat back to you, you know, little snippets of what you've told me in my own words that dramatically demonstrate to you that I'm listening to what you say, Fred. And then I add on to that the emotional aspect of it and how you feel about it this happened to you and you were very disappointed or confused or excited, whatever it might be those two simple things um, if we do that when we communicate with our friends, our family, uh, people at work, even people we have conflict with, it really sets you apart as someone who is also worthy of their respect and it helps build a great relationship and I think all of us you know can uh, benefit from trying to do more and more of that in our lives.
0: Yeah, well said, Gary. Where do you see the hostage negotiation space going over the next few years?
1: Well, I hope it's resurging. I, uh, You know, um, the business, I think, took a hit after 9-11. Um, after 9-11, the whole focus, as you know so well, in the government was, you know, military um, striking of terrorists and you know, using the hammer to go after them. And and I understand that, and I'm not saying that was wrong. But we tended to forget the value that negotiation plays, even in a tactical situation, in terms of setting up a perpetrator or buying time to assemble resources and gather intelligence, whatever it might be. And I, I'm hoping now with the current discussion about what is the role of law enforcement in America, what we want police to do, and community policing and engaging with communities, I'm hoping that negotiation skills We'll have a bit of a renaissance. Uh, quite some years ago, I worked with a police department in Florida who decided they wanted to train their entire police department in negotiation skills. And they did. Not just the negotiation team, but literally every officer. The next year, their SWAT callouts were reduced by 75%. Wow. And it just tells you an awful lot about arming police officers, not just with the essential firearms skills and defensive tactics skills they need. But the communication skills, so we can avoid the conflict or de-escalate a tense situation. As you know, officers are called to go to homes where people are having a knockdown, dragout fight, and romantic relationships gone bad. People drunk on drugs, whatever it might be, and those are tough enough. And they don't, uh, you know, there's no easy answer to all of them. But if we arm police officers with an improved set of communication skills. I mean, I certainly believe that we can go a long way to minimize the, uh, the, the times where we have to use a higher level of force. And that's what we want to do. Not only is that good for the citizens we serve, but it's good for our officers who don't have to get hurt or possibly killed. So I'm hoping that's the future. Um, I'm hoping we have a, a bit of a, a renaissance in negotiations. Um, we'll see.
0: Well said, Gary. I want to thank you for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast and also thank you for everything that you've done for our country over the years.
1: Well, thank you Fred. It's uh it's it's a great pleasure to be with you and and uh particularly having worked with you and alongside your outstanding career. So, we're in a, a mutual adoration society it seems.
0: This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at antec.co/slash Center. Again, that's ontic.co. Center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.